Welcome back once again to our midweek Bible study. From 1961 until 1998, mostly on late Saturday afternoons, Jim McKay famously anchored a pioneering TV sports show. Spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sport. The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. The human drama of athletic competition. This is ABC's Wide World of Sports. Most of us who watch the iconic first 30 seconds of this show can scarcely remember the images that were used to illustrate the thrill of victory, but boy, do we remember the agony of defeat as poor ski jumper Vinko Bokataj wiped out over and over, right? Week after week, decade after decade. And so it is with our study this week, where David and his men enjoy the thrill of victory over the Amalekites, but it's perhaps overshadowed a bit by Saul and his sons and Israel experiencing the agony of defeat at the hands of the Philistines. We'll explore these first two chapters, or or final two chapters, I should say, of 1 Samuel under four alliterative headings found in the notes. Mourning and mutiny, followed by pursuit and provision, then success and sharing, followed by loss and loyalty. It all starts with mourning and mutiny in 1 Samuel 30, verses 1 to 6. And you'll remember that at the end of chapter 29, the Lord had disentangled David's dilemma uh, with the Philistines, sending him and his men back from the battle lines that were forming between the Philistines and the Israelites back to their sleepy country town of Ziklag. And we might wonder what what they talked about and how they were feeling on this three-day 50 or 60 mile journey. Uh, Perhaps the more militaristic men were were disappointed at missing the action, and others may have been relieved at not having to fight against Israel and essentially really being sent home on furlough back to their wives and children and their families. So we aren't told exactly what those conversations were like, but we do know that when they arrived back at Ziklag, they found their town burned to the ground with all the women and children captured and hauled off by the enemy. You see, the Amalekites had taken advantage of these unguarded areas. They knew the Philistines and Israelites were lining up for battle, and and they used it as an opportunity for maybe payback for David and his crew who had raided them earlier in chapter 27, you remember. At any rate, it was not the homecoming that David and his men expected. No no smiles and hugs, right? Just a charred ghost town with no loved ones to greet them. David and all the people with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. That's some serious mourning, right? When warriors cry so loud and so long that they can't cry anymore. And soon the cries of mourning led to talk of mutiny. David's men spoke of stoning him to death because they were so bitter in soul for their sons and daughters that had been captured and carried away. You think of David's situation here. His own wives, Ahinoam and Abigail, had been taken captive. 
His city of Ziklag had been burned with fire. All his men have spent all their strength crying and mourning. And now they're talking about stoning him. (laughs) Maybe blaming him for not leaving some men behind to protect the, the city and their loved ones. We don't know exactly what. But we can understand why David was greatly distressed, as it says in the English Standard Version, or as other translations put it, he was in deep trouble. He was very upset. He was desperate, under a great deal of pressure, seriously worried, in anguish, in great danger, or in a very precarious situation. Now, we've seen what Saul did when he was greatly distressed, right? He disobeyed God again and again when he was in a tight spot. What will David do is our question. Answer, David strengthened himself in the Lord. He strengthened himself in the Lord. And other translations say he encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Perhaps by recalling God's words to him and how the Lord had been faithful to his word. Remember what David had written earlier in Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4? When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Even his men as they plot stoning him, right? Well, when Saul was in great distress, if you look at 28.15, he turned to a medium. Whereas when David was in great distress in chapter 30, verse 6, he turned to the Lord. And I think we can also maybe see some growth perhaps in David here. Back in chapter 27, remember David was talking to himself, talking, saying to his own heart and planning his own escape uh, in, in the Philistine territory of Gath. But now in chapter 30, David is talking to the Lord. Right? And that brings us to our second section of pursuit and provision in verses 7 to 15. David calls the priest Abiathar to bring the ephod so he can inquire of the Lord. Shall I pursue after this band of raiders? Shall I overtake them? Well, what's the answer, Lord? And God's clear answer was yes, pursue. Yes, overtake. Yes, rescue. Surely this is going to happen. Now, David's men have seen this before, right? When he inquired of the Lord back in chapter 23 about the city of Keilah, the Lord's answer had proved totally trustworthy. So, David's men do a total about-face from mutiny against David to actually marching out behind their leader. And archaeologists estimate that the brook Besser was about 12 miles southwest of Ziklag, So after this, what amounts to almost a half marathon, probably at a pace of double time because they're trying to catch up with the raiders, a third of David's men were too exhausted to cross the water and continue the pursuit. And remember, uh, these weren't the trained select troops that Saul had at his disposal. It was his ragtag bunch, and, and 200 of them, just they, they, they were whipped and they stayed behind with the baggage. They couldn't go any further. The 400, who were maybe a little bit better shape, uh, pressed on and were able to carry a lighter load with them, maybe speed up their pace a little bit. As they crossed the open country, then David and his 400 men found a sick, famished, thirsty Egyptian. Uh, he had gone three days and three nights, we learned, without food or drink. 
And uh, so they revived him. They gave him some bread, some, some water, some figs and raisins. Love that. Uh, David questioned him once he had kind of come to and could talk. And he divulged that he was a servant of an Amalekite raider. Uh, he had fallen sick and they had just left him to die, basically. When David then did swear by God not to kill him or to deliver him into his master's hands, the man agreed to take David and his men down to that band of raiders. He had an idea of where they had gone. And you may notice, and may have noticed in your own study, God's double provision in this situation. Double provision. See, the Lord provided David and his men to rescue this young man, this young Egyptian who, who had been left to die. And the Lord provided the young man to guide David and his men to the place where they could rescue their families. Double provision at the hand of God. And that brings us to our third section of success and sharing. Success and sharing. Remember how when David inquired that the Lord told David he would surely overtake and he would surely rescue. And that's exactly what happens here, right? With the Egyptian scout kind of leading the way, David and his men come upon the Amalekite post-battle party. And what a party it is. I mean, the, the raiding band is spread all over the land. They're eating, they're drinking, they're dancing. They are living large with their spoil, right? And they knew the, the Philistines and the Israelites were all lined up for battle far away, so they had no worries. They're just partying away freely. But David and his 400 men bring a surprise to this party, striking down the Amalekites, really doing Saul's unfinished business back from chapter 15, apparently from twilight one day to evening the next day. And it was only 400 of the young men who were able to escape on mounted camels. The rest were struck down. And almost nothing, amazingly, we're told that nothing was missing. None of the spoil or the people, including all the children and David's two wives. By God's grace, David rescued and he brought back all. I mean, the success is abundant. But what about the sharing? Well, as David's crew drove the livestock back to where they'd left it at the brook with the baggage, some of the 400 fighting men, some of them, the wicked and worthless ones, were saying, hey, listen, because those 200 exhausted ones didn't join in the battle, they're not going to get any of the spoil. You know, maybe, yeah, all right, we'll let those 200 have their families back, but then we're sending them away. They're, they're packing. They're not part of us anymore. I mean, no brawling, no benefits, right? No brawling, no benefits. And, and it looks like a split then is kind of brewing among David's followers. But David then steps in so tactfully, and he points them away from their mere worldly reasoning about the spoil we have recovered. This is ours. Look at what we did to a heavenly perspective on what the Lord has given us. The Lord has preserved us. The Lord has given into our hand the band that came against us. God gave us the success, and we're going to share it equally, right? Share and share alike. And that actually became a custom or precedent in Israel that was still in force, the author says, at the time that the book of First and Second Samuel was completed. Not only that, but out of his generous heart, generous heart, David sent presents from the spoil. Here, here's some presents I'm sending to you. Presents from the spoil of the Lord's enemies. Not just Israel's enemies, they were the Lord's enemies. 
And he sends him to his friends in Judah in all the areas that he and his men had been roaming around when they were dodging Saul all those years. And that's just what we'd expect, right, from a man after God's own heart, a generous heart in sharing. So David and his men then experienced the thrill of victory. But Saul and his sons and the Israelite army experienced the agony of defeat. Chapter 31 tells us a story of great loss and great loyalty. The account of this battle itself is really brief. It's summarized in a single verse. The men of Israel fled before the Philistines and they fell slain on Mount Gilboa. That's the headline. Israel was utterly defeated. And then the report focuses on three of Saul's sons, including godly Jonathan, who were struck down and killed, just as Samuel had prophesied the night before that they would be. Commentator Davis says, Jonathan remained a true friend to David and a faithful son of Saul. He surrendered his kingship to David. He sacrificed his life for Saul. Swell said. And then the camera zooms in even closer to Saul and his armor bearer. And we learn that the Philistine archers had wounded Saul badly on the hillside there. And so in order to avoid the shame of being killed by his uncircumcised enemies, Saul asks his armor bearer to just thrust him through and finish him off. Well, the armor bearer was struck with great fear, probably at the notion of killing the Lord's anointed, and he refuses to, to get involved in that. So Saul ends his own life by falling on his own sword, right, dying at his own hand, as did his armor bearer, who then followed suit. Well, in case we miss the allusion to David's uh, Samuel's earlier prophecy in 28 verse 19, the narrator gives us a clear summary in chapter 31.6. Thus Saul died and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day, together. God's word spoken through Samuel was fulfilled. And when the rest of the Israelites, on the other side of the valley and beyond the Jordan, saw that Saul's troops had fled and that he and his sons were dead, I mean, these Israelites just abandoned their cities and, and headed out the other direction. And the Philistines were all too happy to come in and occupy those cities, so that Gains that Saul had made earlier in his reign against the Philistines were now reversed at the end as they gave them up to their enemy. And then to add insult to injury, the Philistines cut off Saul's head, just as David had done with the great Philistine leader Goliath earlier. They cut off his head. They put his armor in the temple of their goddess Ashtaroth. They display his body publicly on the wall of Bethshan. And it looked, I think, right at that moment, it looked as though the ungodly had won, right? The Israelites had fled. The king and his sons were dead. Their corpses were spiked to the wall. And his armor was in their temple, right? It seemed as though perhaps their goddess was more powerful than Yahweh. The loss was humiliating. And it's followed by an act of courageous loyalty. You may recall from the backstory in chapter 11 that at the beginning of his reign, Saul's first victory, his very first victory, was delivering the people of Jabesh Gilead from their enemies, the Ammonites. 
And in some ways, it was, I think, the high point of Saul's reign, right? Because at the end of that battle, he gave the Lord the credit for working salvation in Israel. And the people of Jabesh never forgot that day of deliverance. They remained loyal to Saul. And so the valiant men from Jabesh expressed their loyalty by trekking all night, 10 miles or so through the night, we figure, to Bethshan, where they daringly, perhaps stealthily, removed the royal bodies and took them back to Jabesh, where they burned them, putting an end to the dishonor. And then they gathered up the bones of Saul and his sons and buried them under the tamarisk tree right there in Jabesh, followed by a week of fasting to mourn this fallen king. But that is not the end of the story. Remember that what we call 1st and 2nd Samuel is really a single book. So we will see next week how the Lord turns the tables on his enemies through King David, starting in 2nd Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 5. Still, I think it's appropriate now with, with the death of Saul to pause and maybe draw some lessons from his life. It started out so well, right? He's anointed in order to save his people from the Philistines. Uh, He's equipped, that's in chapter 9, he's equipped with the Spirit for this task in chapter 10, and he wins a victory over the Lord's enemies in chapter 11. It, It just looks all so promising and bright the future. But repeatedly, when Saul was given the opportunity to trust in the Lord and to obey him, Saul trusted in his own plans and disobeyed God. So Samuel spoke truly in chapters 13 and 15 that due to Saul's disobedience, the Lord would take the kingdom from Saul and give it to someone better than him, a man after God's own heart, his neighbor David. Uh, Saul's unrepentant disobedience led to this downward spiritual spiral that ended in occult consultation of the dead and dying at his own hands. Samuel spoke truly way back in chapter 8. Remember the backstory that Israel was dead wrong to demand a king to be like all the other nations, right? And to fight their battles. They they want the tall, handsome guy. Uh, Don't trust ultimately, right, in any human leader. Ultimately, put your trust in the Lord. So at the same time, that David rescued all, the thrill of victory over the Amalekites, Saul rescued none in the end, the agony of defeat to the Philistines. Well, as with last week, many of you probably have already been able to apply this portion of God's word to your lives, but if you haven't yet, consider these four points in closing. We'll take one point from each subsection that we have studied. Number one, are you greatly distressed? Are you greatly distressed? Strengthen yourself in the Lord, as David did in chapter 30, verse 6. Right? Don't let your problems drive you from God, as Saul did, but let your problems drive you to God, as David did. Number two, do you need guidance? Do you need guidance? Then inquire of the Lord, as David did in chapter 30, verse 8. Draw near to God's throne to receive mercy and grace in your time of need. Choir of the Lord. Three, has God given you success? 
has God given you success? Then share the resources that the Lord has generously given to you. Share them with others, like David did in chapter 30, verses 24 to 31. Right? Don't, don't be a sponge soaking it up for yourself, all the blessings for me. No, instead be a funnel, right? channeling God's blessings to others as well. And fourth, are you caught in a pattern of sin? Are you caught in a pattern of sin as Saul was? Then repent, right? Repent, turn away from it now, now, rather than entering that long downward spiral that we see in Saul. Finally, though it is definitely not the point of this story, I think it is easy to see some striking contrast between the death of Saul and the death of Jesus. Saul was killed by his enemies due to his disobedient failure to follow the Lord's ways. We've seen that again and again. Jesus was killed by his enemies due to his complete obedience in following the Lord's ways. He's the righteous anointed one, the Lord's true anointed. Saul was defeated and his body hung publicly and mocked before others risked themselves to give him a more proper burial. Jesus only seemed to be defeated when his body was hung publicly and he was mocked before Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came and took a risk with his honorable burial. Saul's body was burned in weakness and shame by the men of Jabesh, but Jesus' body was raised in power and glory on the third day. Saul was an unfaithful king of God's people for a time, but Jesus is the faithful king of God's people for all time. Saul was Israel's first king, whose kingship came to a humiliating end. Jesus is the king of kings, whose kingdom shall never, ever end. Praise Jesus. We'll see you next week as we begin our study of 2 Samuel with chapters 1 and 5.